Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. You are listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 8.55 a.m. I am Professor Jane Caputi. I teach at Florida Atlantic University in the United States, and I teach in a program for women, gender, and sexuality studies. And welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Sometimes questions are more important than answers. Nancy Willard who is an American poet. And I'm speaking to Professor Elizabeth Anderson about private governments and how employers rule our lives and why we don't talk about it. Now, could you, first of all, give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Sure. So I'm a professor of philosophy at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and I've taught here for a little bit more than 30 years, working mainly in moral and political philosophy and feminist theory, especially feminist epistemology, looking at how gender affects the way we perceive and think about the world. And recently, I've been embarked on a very large project on the history of egalitarianism, the history of people's struggles to create a free society of equals. And as part of that, I got very interested in looking at labor relations, because a huge part of the struggle for equality has been a struggle for equality in the workplace. Uh, That, of course, was key to the abolitionist movement in the late 18th and 19th centuries, the movement to abolish slavery. But out of abolitionism came struggles against wage slavery and struggles to transform the workplace. So that's what my book is about. What was it that inspired you to study the abuse of powers by employers? Yeah, this goes way back. So when I was in high school, I grew up in a libertarian household, very much in the Cold War, and communism was awful. But I thought, well, maybe I should actually read up about Marxist political thought. I was even doing this in high school, but I didn't believe any of it because it was all talking about things like a surplus value and the falling rate of profit and the immiseration of the workers. And those kinds of distributive justice concerns didn't really match reality because workers in the 1970s 
were way richer if they lived in capitalist countries than in communist countries. So I just thought it was all, just didn't make any sense. And then I went to college and took my first philosophy course. And in that course, we read Marx's 1844 manuscripts. And those manuscripts, which had only been published a few years before in English, gave a radically different critique of the capitalist system that was focused on conditions of labor and how oppressive the factory system was to workers while they were on the job. It wasn't really about their low wages. It was about the awful working conditions under which they suffered alienation at work, meaningless work, repetitive work, but also the oppression of bosses over their workers. And that was a critique I'd never really been familiar with before. And then when I went into the working world, I discovered that bosses really do lord it over their workers, often in pretty obnoxious ways, and that this was a gap in libertarian philosophy. <laughs> Libertarians don't really have a, any rationale. They're completely unaware of this. They're oblivious to the problem. That was that I tucked behind in my brain for a while, and decades later I decided to really tackle it seriously and investigate it. And so my book, Private Government, is the result. You made a good point about people not being aware of the situation, and I know in Australia at the moment it's very, very difficult for young people to into home ownership, whereas, well, back back in my day or my parents' day, it was it was just something everybody did, and now the percentage of people owning their own homes has drastically decreased. And I suppose there's a different system you you have in America because you have long term renters, but I feel that in Australia that's uh, the way that property prices have increased wages haven't increased the same to the to the same amount and that's causing people not to be able to buy their own homes and not have that security in housing yes so there's a housing crisis in the united states too and a lot of it is brought on not so much by low wages as by precarious and uncertain wages so the thing about having a mortgage is you lose your entire investment if you can't be absolutely confident that you can make your monthly mortgage payment. And then the house could be, you know, the mortgage could be foreclosed and you lose your whole investment. And what we see since the 2008 recession is a steep increase in precarious jobs, jobs that don't that don't carry any security with them. So you don't know if you'll be employed six months from now. A lot more day labor, a lot more just gigs like Uber and TaskRabbit. Uh, These things, you can't count on them. You can lose your, your source of income at any time. People have unsteady hours and unpredictable careers as a result. And that lack of security does two things. One is it makes it difficult for them to make long-term financial plans and commitments like a mortgage on a house. 
but it also means that they are subject to much, they're much more vulnerable to arbitrary treatment at the hands of their bosses. If they, you know, if, if they know their bosses are liable to fire them at the slightest uh, transgression or moment of displeasure, it's terrifying because that's their livelihood. What are they going to do next? And it's really that second problem that is the focus of my book, the ways in which bosses take advantage of the vulnerability and insecurity of workers, their lack of bargaining power and so forth, to lord it over them and abuse them in various ways. Now, there's been some misconceptions among people that uh, they think that free markets make workers free Yes, exactly. That's the ideology, that libertarian ideology, which is very prominent in the United States and I think in a lot of the English-speaking world. The idea that free markets make workers free. And what I argue in the book is that markets and labor do not make workers free. It is true that under modern labor markets, workers are free to turn down an offer of a job, and they can quit pretty much at any time. So in that sense, they can exit and enter the employment relationship. They're free to do that. But while they're in the employment relationship, they are subject to a form of government. And that's really the key thesis of my book that once you enter the workplace, you are the subject of your boss. Your boss gets to order you around. You are a participant in a little government. The boss is the head of that government, and the constitution of that little government is, in most cases, a dictatorship. The boss's word is the law, and you have to obey it or get fired or demoted, or harassed, and abused in various ways. So the kind of government that workers enter, for the most part, is dictatorial and tyrannical, and tens of millions, hundreds of millions of workers, perhaps even billions of workers, in these relationships suffer serious abuse as a result. In regards to power of employers over employees, aren't there enough safeguards in place to ensure that employers don't abuse their power? Well, in the advanced economies, there are workplace regulations that theoretically are supposed to protect workers. But in reality, a lot of those regulations don't cover the kind of ordinary abuses to which workers are routinely subjected. And the remaining regulations are very weakly enforced. So in practice, workers are really vulnerable to endless abuse without very much recourse. So in the United States, for instance, employers are free to harass employees as long as they do it on a non-discriminatory basis. So as long as the boss is yelling equally much at black and white and Latino workers, at Jewish, Muslim, and Christian workers, at male and female workers, if the boss is just yelling and screaming at everybody equally, <laughs> there's no discrimination, and consequently there's no claim under the law against it. 
And, and similarly, for dozens of other kinds of abuses to which people might be subject. In addition to that, under American law, uh, we have this thing called mandatory arbitration. I'm not sure if that exists in Australia. But these days, workers can be forced upon entering, signing the work contract to agree to our private arbitration of any dispute that might arise. Now, the arbitrator is a private company that hears these disputes, but the company is hired by the employer, and the company knows that if it renders decisions against the employer for any abuse that's taken place, that the employer is just going to dump them. So we have we already have the empirical evidence on how this has happened. Workers are far less likely to win their a judgment under private arbitration than they are if they have access to the courts. So even though technically they have certain rights under the law, if they're forced into private arbitration, it's kind of like pressing a complaint against the king where the king gets to hear his own case and pronounce on whether he's guilty of any violation of his subject's rights. That's pretty much what arbitration amounts to in the United States, and workers really have no effective protections under a system like that. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 8.55 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to Professor Elizabeth Anderson about the abuse of powers by employers. Could you tell us about cases where employees are told to wear diapers or nappies instead of being able to take bathroom breaks? Yes, isn't this appalling? (laughs) It's quite shocking. It is. So Oxfam America actually did an investigation of workplace conditions in America's slaughterhouses, and in particular in the ones that butcher chickens. And what they found was that the moment a worker enters that refrigerated room where they are deboning the chickens, They're not allowed to take a bathroom break for the entire shift. They simply have to be standing, working in these frigid conditions and and hold it in. Now, if you actually look, we do have a regulatory agency called OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and OSHA has promulgated a regulation that says that every employer has to supply a bathroom. Uh, at the workplace. However, they failed to mention that the employer has to permit workers to use the bathroom. (laughs) So the bathroom's there, but it's locked, and and the workers aren't allowed to use it. So what happens? Well, they've actually documented cases where workers have been told to just hold it in, and if they couldn't anymore, but they couldn't just quit on the spot, and they wet themselves, then they're mocked and harassed by the boss, and everyone laughs at them. Or they have to suffer the indignity of wearing nappies to work. That's, this, is, this is a real thing. There's been a decades-long struggle by workers, in, not just in slaughterhouses, but in agriculture generally, to get the right to use the bathroom. A few decades ago, there was even a strike against a major auto manufacturer by 
the workers, these were unionized workers, uh, a strike just to get the right to use the bathroom. Uh, and even today, we still find that workers, notwithstanding the existence of regulations that supposedly guarantee them a bathroom, are unenforced and workers are still suffering these horrible indignities. There's also a lot of sexual harassment that goes on in the workplaces as well, isn't there? Yes, it's absolutely appalling. So you may have heard there's been a string of accusations that have brought down a number of very powerful people in the entertainment industry, in filmmaking, comedy, and so forth. And sometimes in Silicon Valley, there have been some downfalls there as well. What we haven't heard in the media is what about the less famous non-celebrity bosses? They're under the radar, but there's lots of them, and millions of workers are subject to harassment in low-wage, low-prestige job, not, you know, broadcasters or actresses, but say, let's take the typical restaurant worker. Turns out 90% of restaurant workers in the United States complain of sexual harassment when they're surveyed. 90% experience sexual harassment. Harassment's also pervasive in the hotel industry. Numerous low-wage jobs. Workers are actually more vulnerable in low-wage jobs than they are in celebrity jobs like in entertainment to sexual harassment. But nobody hears of them. Their bosses are unknown and they pretty much engage in this behavior with impunity. Why do you think it is that people really just don't want to speak about these problems? Well, in America, I actually think that there are there's a big ideological obstacle to recognizing what's going on and why it's a problem. So in, the United States has a long history of just imagining that free markets are going to liberate everyone. And this actually goes back to the origins of the Republican Party and even before, during the Revolution, the American Revolution, uh, the War of Independence against England. One thing that's important to know that makes the United States historically unusual is that in the late 18th century, the free workers of the United States had historically unprecedented rates of self-employment. All the free men, the free men in the American colonies were self-employed. They owned their own plot of land and they were farming it, or they were craftsmen of various sorts and owned their own shop. There was very little wage labor. And throughout the first half of the 19th century, this dream of being your own boss, of having your own plot of land or running your own store, was absolutely pervasive among the free white population. And the Republican Party was founded on the idea that this should be universalized, that the slaves should be emancipated, and they should get an opportunity to be self-employed as well. So that was the dream that the free market was supposed to deliver to people. And, of course, that didn't happen. What really happened was the Industrial Revolution came to the United States, ironically, in the United States, 
the Industrial Revolution was actually massively propelled by the Civil War, whose aim ultimately was to end slavery, but in fact it just put a lot of people into wage slavery. (laughs) Mm. So we have this very ironic outcome, but that ideology that the free market will make everyone free in the sense of self-governing, being their own boss, self-employed, continued long after its uh, expiration date. And that rhetoric has continued up to the present, and it's the source, even today, of the Republican Party's near worship of the entrepreneur, of the small businessman. It's deep-set in American ideology, and it makes people fall into a certain kind of rhetoric. And and the rhetoric is, well, government, that's where you get bossed around. That's where people are ordering you, giving you orders that you have to obey that haven't been chosen by you. And the market is where you get to be free. And, you know, back back around 1776, that was sort of true. You know, Americans were ruled by a colonial government. They didn't have any representation in that government. And where they found their freedom was in commerce, in, in at, at work, because they didn't have to answer to a boss. That was true for the free workers, obviously, not for the slaves. But that image that you're free at work, but not in your relation to the state, has continued to the present. And what people are missing And what's missing in libertarian philosophy is a recognition that the workplace is itself a site of government. It's not necessarily run by the state, but there's a government there because you've got somebody who's issuing orders to other people and can punish people, impose sanctions for disobeying those orders or not obeying them perfectly well. And that's what bosses are. They're dictators of a little government, which is the workplace. Americans pervasively fail to recognize that fact. It's not in political discourse because they're still stuck in the kind of political discourse that we learned from Thomas Paine, the great American revolutionary and a pretty good labor radical for his day, and Abraham Lincoln, the founder of the Republican Party, They promised that free markets would enable everyone to be self-employed. The promise didn't pan out as they expected because of the Industrial Revolution, but that rhetoric stuck around long past its expiration date. What's the relevance of the difference between the government and the state? Yes, so on my view, there's government everywhere. Wherever you see some people ordering other people around and having the authority to do so, you have a government. The state is just one kind of government, and that's where you have the capacity to punish people using you know, certain kinds of physical force, like you can throw them in prison. You have courts. It's very formalized. They assert, the state asserts a monopoly on the use of violence and so forth. But there's all kinds of governments besides the state. The workplace is a government. Churches govern themselves. Any private club will govern itself. All kinds of relationships are governing relationships. There's even a little government in the family. Back in the 18th century, most people understood the fact that government was everywhere. But today, under the influence of 
America's libertarian ideology, people think that the only government that exists is a state. And that makes it easy to fall into the error of thinking that if it's not the state ordering you around, then you must be free. Could you explain about Adam Smith's philosophy? Yes. So Adam Smith, of course, is, has reputation as the, basically the founder and great defender of capitalism. But in fact, if you read his Wealth of Nations really closely, what you'll find is he's one of the greatest friends of the ordinary worker that you can read uh, in the history of philosophy. And the reason for that is that Smith had a certain model of what free markets would deliver. In his day, most markets were controlled by monopolies that were state-granted. The state basically would give a monopoly in trade of certain goods like candles or, you know, probably anything, leathers, letter goods, and then that monopoly would tyrannize over everyone else, <laughs> tyrannize over the little craftsmen, impose high prices and so forth. And Smith argued, you got to get rid of that monopoly. Monopoly, wherever it is, is just a source of tyranny and oppression and low wages. If you break up monopolies, then individuals would be free to set up their own little shops and compete with the, and compete with the larger shops. And he thought that small businesses were actually more efficient than large businesses because the richer you are, the lazier and less attentive you are to the fine details that are needed to run a business efficiently. Smith thought also that monopoly in land had to be broken up because in the England of his day, all the land actually in, in, in England was owned just by a couple of hundred families. It's all locked up. It was impossible to sell because it was locked up in these family dynasties under inheritance laws, and the estates couldn't be broken up. And so he said, look, we should have free markets and land too, and then the great estates would be broken up and sold off into small plots, and you could have yeoman farmers owning their own farm, and they would also be more efficient. So uh, if you have a system of free markets and perfect competition, the survivors in a competitive market are going to be the most efficient producers. And in Smith's day, it was pretty plausible to think that the most efficient producers would be small business people who would basically be self-employed and have at most just a couple of employees. So under that picture, free markets go along with universal or near-universal self-employment so everyone's their own boss, and everyone is therefore free. And plus, if you only have enough capital that you can work with your own hands, or at most a couple of employees added to that, every enterprise will be small. None of them will be able to dominate any of the others. And you'll see actually a rough equality emerge. So Smith thought that the source of vast inequalities of wealth was monopoly, that the states were sort of creating favorites, setting up some people to the disadvantage of others by giving them monopolies. So free markets would actually equalize everybody, make them free and equal. That was Smith's theory, and the reason, and it was pretty plausible for its day because Smith was writing before the Industrial Revolution really took off. It was just barely beginning, but no one couldn't have anticipated that it would end up with these gigantic factories with thousands of workers who are consigned to wage labor for life.
Yeah, I think you've partly answered this, but do you think there is any way that these problems can be combated? Yes. So if you're under a dictatorship, which I have argued that the workplace is, uh, political philosophy already gives some tools for thinking about uh, how to how to correct that situation. So one idea is to let people leave freedom of immigration rights. Another is the workers under that dictatorship need a bill of rights, some basic rights that the boss can never infringe. And thirdly, the people subject to dictatorship need a voice in that government so that it's no longer a dictatorship, but has some, is a democracy or at least has some democratic elements. And that those general ideas from political philosophy can be applied to the workplace. Workers can get a voice through labor union representatives or even from a more highly institutionalized system, such as what we see in Germany and France, uh, where workers have an automatic right to even management, at least in the larger firms. Workers can have a bill of rights, especially to protect their autonomy and privacy once they're off duty. And workers need more freedom to be able to quit and still be able to work in the same industry as before. So at least in the United States, we've seen proliferation of non-compete agreements, which workers have to sign, which basically say, if you work for this company and then you quit, you're not allowed to work for any competing company in the industry for a certain number of years. And that kind of traps them under the thumb of their particular employer because they'd have to leave their skills behind if they ever quit. And that, of course, makes them more vulnerable to abuse than before. So I believe that non-compete agreements should be abolished so that workers can go and work in any competing company in the same industry so that they can keep using their skills if they find their current work arrangements unsatisfactory. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you. And I've been speaking to Professor Elizabeth Anderson about the abuse of powers by employers. That's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought.